We turn now to our scripture reading for this morning. It's taken out of John chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Jesus said to her, this woman that he's been speaking to, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. This is the word of the Lord. I love how a lessons and carol service helps us step back and see the entire course of human history just laid out in one quick overview, starting way back from what went wrong with humanity to God's amazing response in that very moment where everything is broken. He promises to fix what he broke, what we broke. And then he keeps working throughout his, his <clears throat> history without any help from us to turn his promise into our reality. You can sum up the reason that moved Jesus from heaven to earth in a very tight shorthand. You can say that Jesus came to save his people from our sins. But when you see the broad sweep of history, you get a much better sense of what that means, of why it's necessary, and you get to see God's heart in a whole new light. That's been our goal during our Sunday morning teaching series this Advent, to see what does it really mean for Jesus to save us, and in the process to see his heart in doing that. We've been studying John chapter 4. It's an interaction that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman. And as you listen to her talk, you realize that when you scratch away just the, the surface differences between her life and ours, between her social location and ours, that we're really very similar at the level of what we trust in to give us a good life. Just like us, she finds safety in the identities that her society has constructed for her. The ones that tell her what she can and can't do, the ones that tell her who she can and can't do that with. She believes, like we do, that innovation, new technologies, are the ticket to a better life and that they can even insulate you from all the things that you've done wrong and from the things that others have done wrong to you. We've seen that she puts a tremendous amount of hope and confidence in relationships, believing that the right relationship will finally bring her happiness and security on this earth. And we've been seeing that when you get to the core of what makes human beings tick, down to the level of our hearts, to what we trust in, we are far more alike than we are different. Even if we're separated by 2,000 years of time and by thousands of miles of geography and by completely different cultures. 
Sadly, what we've also been seeing is that none of those things work for her. Instead, she is what? She's socially isolated. She's cut off from others. She is personally a little prickly, defensive. She's filled with shame. And she has run through so many relationships, she doesn't even bother now going to the altar. She doesn't mean, think that what? That this current relationship is going to give her any more lasting hope than the last five. And in that sense, what this woman trusts in, what she looks to to save her from the, the ugliness and the sorrow of living in a broken world, it just it never lives up to what it promises. And so what she really needs is to be saved from all the things that she's tried to rely on to save her. And that's why Jesus is still there at the well. It's why he keeps leaning into her life. It's why he refuses to go away, even when she insults him, even when she tries to change the subject on him. He's there because he came to save. And you realize that as you watch him, he didn't come to save people in the abstract, but he came to save individuals. He came to save her. But to do that, there's one more thing that he needs to save her from. That's what we see in today. That's religion. Or as the discussion comes up between them, it's the wrong kind of worship. Now, the word worship there is used ten times today in that little section that we read. It's a word that is used, however, in two very different ways, and it's used to point to two very different things. So to see what Jesus needs to save her from today, we're going to focus on three things this morning. First, why talking about worship in a modern world is still necessary. Why worship matters to modern people. Second, that what you worship matters. And third, that how you worship matters. We're going to look at why worship matters to modern people, that what you worship matters, and that how you worship matters. So first, if you live in the modern age, in the secular West, you realize that more and more people don't have real positive views about religion. The percentage of U.S. adults who claim to have no religious affiliation has been sharply rising over the last three decades. Now, that's true for all age groups, but it's even more so for those who are 30 years and under. Roughly one-third of young adults in the U.S. now claim to be a religious nun. That's nun spelled N-O-N-E, meaning that they have no religious affiliation, one-third. And as the sociologist Stephen Bullivant has pointed out in his recent book, Nonverts, a large number of these people are like converts, but they've been moving from being part of a religion to having none at all. Trevin Wax, who among other things works at the Gospel Coalition, points out that many of these people have left not simply because they're asking, is religion true? Is Christianity true? And then decide, no, it's not, it's not really true. It's not really credible. They're not asking that simply. They're asking many times, is it good? Does the Christian faith produce good people who contribute to good societies who in turn are then good to other people? And many people are deciding, no, it doesn't. Instead, within the faith, and this is easily cataloged, there's a history of oppression, history of mistreating women, of undeniable racism, of sexual abuse, of protecting the interests of the powerful, 
of promoting a moral vision that seems backward and unworkable, of hypocrisy, and so increasingly people are leaving the faith. Which means that when we come to a passage like this this morning, it's reasonable for you and me to ask, is this relevant to us at all in the modern age? Especially as this conversation looks like it's just another tedious religious argument. Jesus was talking about the woman's life. He was getting super personal, talking about things that really matter, and the woman dodges him by bringing up religion. She hides behind religion. She raises a theological argument. Is this the right mountain to worship on, or is that one? And if you dig into the history here, you learn, realize she's not really looking for an answer, because that had been an ongoing debate now that had been raging between the Jews and Samaritans for centuries because of how we are impacted by our present social location as we live among nuns and nonverts, as we are sympathetic to the concerns that our friends raise, maybe even we, as we have those concerns ourselves, it's really easy to read this passage and think, this is exactly the kind of toxic stuff that just turns people off. Religious fights between religious insiders, this mountain or that mountain, it's unsolvable. Religious debates that have nothing to do with real life. Religion that is essentially used as an escape to dealing with real life. So why should you or I, or anyone for that matter, care about this religious-oriented discussion that took place 2,000 years ago? It's because this lady's question despite her attempt to distract Jesus, has deep insight underneath it. Insight into the nature of humanity that spans times, places, ethnicities, worldviews. What's her insight? It's that everyone worships. That it's impossible not to worship something. That as a human being, there are certain things that you value and certain things that you don't value. And that among those things that you do value, you value them differently. There are things that you value most. There are things that you value less. And then what you most value, what's always rising to the top, always determines how you live your life. That what you value sets your goals in life. It tells you what you're living for. It tells you what is worth living for. It tells you how to go about getting what is worth living for. It defines what you think. It defines what you think about. It defines what you think is not worth thinking about. It informs what you talk about. It fills your conversation. It's what all of your friends know is important to you because you talk about it all the time with them. And it determines your feelings. You're happy if you have this thing of most value, and you're not happy if you don't. You might be angry, bitter, depressed, discouraged, whatever, but you're definitely not happy. And that's what worship means. That something is so important to you that it impacts all the dimensions of your life. And this lady recognizes that we all have something like that. We don't usually call it worship in the modern age. It sounds kind of funny to our secularized ears. But each of us have things that we prize of ultimate value things that dictate how we live, and in that sense, those are the things that we worship. They're what we wrap our lives around. 
They're the center of gravity that just keep drawing us in our lives. They're the control center of our lives. And you can't help doing that. You can't say to yourself, oh, okay, I, I just won't value anything. Go ahead and try sometime. And what will you do? You'll find that your mind just keeps drifting back over and over and over and over to the same thing. Not because you're obsessive, but because you worship. Everyone does. That's what this lady acknowledges, verse 20, when she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And what she just said was, here's normal life. My people worship here, your people worship there, but we all worship. We all worship something. We all worship somewhere in some way because that's who we are as human beings, something you can see empirically. And that's exactly what Scripture has always been careful to say. In the Ten Commandments, God starts off in the very first one by saying, you shall have no other gods before me. And you notice there that he doesn't say, hey, you have a choice. You can choose to worship or you can choose not to worship. What he says is you do have a choice to worship me or to worship something else. To put me first in that place of ultimate value or to put something else there. You can choose what to worship, but you don't have a choice of whether or not to worship. You're going to do that in some way. And that's true of our friends. It's true of atheists and agnostics, of nuns, of nonverts. Each person has certain values that they hold higher than they hold others, values that they orient their lives toward having, thinking that those things will what? That they'll give them a good life. And in that sense, even though they are willing to say that they're non-religious, they're actually just as religious as anyone else. They use different words to express what is at the central core of their lives. But they are just as committed to those values as any explicitly religious person is. And the lady sees that. Might be that her social location, her society, helped her see that more clearly than ours does more clearly than ours helps us. She sees two realities about the human race, that everyone worships something and that what everyone worships is different. And that most people, if you listen carefully, are just as willing as any religious person to debate, to debate the merits of what they worship, to tell you why the object of their worship is superior and gives a better life and why you want to cling to it even when it doesn't produce everything that it promises. Okay, that's point one. That worship and talking about worship is still important because it still matters to modern people. Which brings us to point two. That not only do, does worship matter, but that what you worship matters. Think about what the woman says to Jesus. She wants to talk about where we worship, this location or that one. She's focused on the logistics of worship the activities, the practices of worship. She's focused on worship in what? In the physical world, on the physical aspects that go along with worship. And if you listen to Jesus, you realize he isn't. He redirects the conversation. He moves from a what to a whom. 
He says to her, verse 21, woman, that's not a put down in her culture. She would not have been offended by that. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. She's caught up in the religious activity of worship, and Jesus says very soon that won't matter because that's not the essence of true worship. Yes, it's what captures us human beings far too often, the form, the practices, the physical aspects of worship. But Jesus redirects us by saying that the essence of worship is the object of your worship. It's the focus of your worship. It's to what your worship is directed. And he says that object has to be a person, has to be the Father. And he describes what this person is like, verse 24, that God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And what's he saying there? He's drawing a distinction between what the woman is focused on and what she really needs to be focused on. By saying that God is spirit, Jesus is saying he's not part of the created order. When you think about worship, your default setting is to think about physical things, places, activities. But true worship is not bound up in the physical world. It doesn't begin and end here. It can't then be consumed with physical kinds of things. Instead, real worship has to be directed toward that which is not part of the physical universe. It has to be directed to that which is spirit. Here's where you realize that Jesus and the woman both use the same word, worship. But they use it to express two very different activities that are grounded in two very different realities. One reality is defined by the physical creation. The other reality is above. It's outside of creation. And Jesus says that's where our worship has to go. He says that this Father, this Spirit, also has a stake in the outcome, that He is invested in what you worship. That verse 23, He is seeking such people. Who are these people? People, according to verse 22, who worship in spirit and truth. That the Father is seeking such people to what? To worship Him. Jesus says that what you worship matters to God. That the Father is seeking people whose worship is not all wrapped up in the physical world, but that He's looking for people. He is seeking people who have a different focus. People whose worship focus is directed outside the created order to Him. That's what God wants. Now, why, you ask, why why should He care about what you worship? Obviously, He does. That's why He lays that out in the first commandment. But why? Why does what you worship matter to Him? And why does He want people to worship Him? Is He just needy? Likes the attention? Can't stand being left out? Why does God the Father seek people to worship Him? It's because if you worship anything other than Him, anything that He has made, anything that begins and ends in the created world, you will discover, just like this woman has already learned, that it will hurt you in the present moment as you worship it, and that it will ultimately desert you, regardless of how much of your life you give to it. Take anything you want as an example. Anything that people worship, good things, 
like achievements, pleasure, health and appearance, relationships, anything that God created for you to enjoy. If that thing becomes not what you enjoy, but what you live for, what you wrap your life around, if you take that good thing and raise it to an ultimate thing, it will always undermine your life. If achievement is your highest goal, getting good grades in school, being successful in sports, advancing in your career, all good things in their place. But if they become what you have to have above all else, you'll learn that you can never enjoy anything you accomplish once you get it. Because now that you have this thing, now there's something else out there. There's some new thing that you're going to have to work hard in order to accomplish. There's the next test that you have to get a good grade on. There's the next sporting event that you have to perform well in. There's the next project or position at work, the next rung up the ladder. There's always something new to focus on. And that kind of focus means you'll never be able to rest in what you have while at the same time you're going to live in constant anxiety, wondering, am I going to be able to come through again? Wondering, who out who out there might beat me out this time because they're younger, smarter, stronger, more gifted, more driven. And even if you somehow manage throughout your entire life to always live at the top in every way, you realize one day it's all going to come to an end. <laughs> Students, you'll graduate. And all those grades that you worked so hard for aren't going to matter to you or to anyone else. Your body will get older, and you won't be able to compete in sports at the same level that you once did. You will age out at work. You will have to retire. Make achievement and success the center of your world. It will hurt you now. It will drive you. It will make you anxious now. And if you live long enough, it'll abandon you. You'll have no future hope. You'll watch other people take your place. They will get the accomplishments and the positions and the recognition that you wanted for yourself. Or if pleasure is your highest value, not just a good thing in its place, but an ultimate thing. If enjoying yourself in whatever way is what you live for, you will grumble about anything that takes you away from it. You'll hate having to go to work hate having to deal with people who interrupt you, hate having to fix things that break, you will hate having to spend time with your family. You'll hate most of life. And you'll discover there's always one more thing that you could experience, one more pleasure that you could have, one more food, one more activity, one more place to visit, which means that it will be hard to enjoy the thing that's right in front of you right now because you'll always be wondering, what else is out, what else is out there that I could enjoy? You'll discover the law of diminishing returns, that the fifth bowl of ice cream is not as good as the first one. <laughs> that regardless of how many shoes you own, you can still only wear one pair at a time. And maybe worst of all, regardless of how good something is, you'll start to realize it never lasts. The best meal ends. The most amazing dessert has one last forkful. The best concert has a finale. The best night out has a last call. 
The best game has a final second. Best night in bed only lasts so long. Make pleasure your highest goal, and you'll never be satisfied with what you have, and what you have will always end. Or make health and beauty your highest value, and, and you will never enjoy another meal in your life. You will spend an ungodly amount of time in the gym. You'll compare yourself to every single person that you meet, and you'll obsess over the smallest detail of your appearance. You know that's true, right? The, the closer and closer that you're, you come to thinking that you're, you're, you have the perfect body, the more all the little imperfections just stand out in this glaring kind of way. You wonder, what was God thinking when he put that mole there? You look at your ears that are not level, and you think, that, that's not right. It's the only thing you can see now when you look in the mirror. You wonder, why are my fingers so fat, or why are they so thin? Why are my legs not longer? You end up obsessing on what you think of as your imperfections until that's the only thing that you can see. Elevate appearance as an ultimate thing, and you will live dissatisfied every time you look in a mirror. And even the things that you like about yourself will be taken away as you get older. Or make relationships an ultimate thing, and you will smother people with way too much attention. You will drive them away so that you end up with less relationship. Or you'll be afraid that if people really knew you, they might not like you. And so you'll keep things from them. You won't say what you really mean. You won't tell them what you really do. Which means what? That they'll end up not relating to the real you. <laughs> Which means, again, you end up with less relationship. Or even if you have great relationships, you discover that they don't last either. That people move away. Jobs change. People relocate. People die. You're going to die. Worship relationships. Elevate them to an ultimate thing, and you will end up more cut off from people now with the guarantee that you're going to lose them all at some point. That's why the Father is so invested in wanting people to worship something that is outside this creation. Because every time you take something from within it, some good thing, elevate it to an ultimate thing, it will ruin your life and will actually keep you from, what, from that thing that you want. Which I think it's fair then to ask, okay, I can see how overvaluing something in this world will hurt me, but how is worshiping God going to be any different? The difference is that God does not need your worship. God has no needs in himself. From all eternity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit have been loving each other. They've been pouring love into each other so that in our one God, there are no needs. There is nothing that our God needs from outside of himself because he's already full. He's already full of love, already full of joy, full overflowing within himself, which means he's not seeking worshipers for his sake. He's seeking worshipers then for what? For their sake. He didn't make human beings to get something from us that he didn't already have. He made us to share with us 
the very best thing that there is in or out of the universe. He made us to share Himself with us, to share His life, His abundance, His goodness. So when you delight yourself in Him, all that will do is add to you, not subtract. And because He promises His people that He will never leave them or forsake them, death does not decrease what you have of Him. It only increases it now you go to be with him. That's one reason that you can be sure that worshiping him will not hurt you, because it's for your best, not for his. But there's another reason as well. Think about the nature of this God you're worshiping. He is the only person who is so completely sold out to what is best for you that he will generously sacrifice everything that he has, including his own life, to make sure that you have everything that you need in every moment that will absolutely guarantee you will spend eternity, what? Happy, filled to overflowing, joyful like he is. When you worship someone like that, when you value him and what he values above everything else, when you want to be connected with him more than you want to be connected to anything else, when you love his thoughts and ideas more than you love anyone else's, when you trust that his ways are better than anything else, when you want to hear his praise, when you want to hear him say to you, well done, more than you want to hear praise from anyone else, when all that is true, what do you think you're going to become like as he becomes your focus? Do you think you're going to be marked by anxiety? worry, impatience, depression? Do you think you're going to be consumed with thoughts of, I have to have it all right now. I can't stand not to have something on this earth because if I die, I might not have it. And God might be a cheat and I might not get something just as good or better in eternity. Do you think you're going to have those kinds of approaches to life? Or if you're worshiping this God, do you think that you're going to be so filled up that you're going to be content now, so filled up that you are not constantly restless, searching for something more, so filled up that you have enough left over to reach out to others, regardless of how they've treated you, <laughs> that you're going to become more patient, more generous, more sacrificial as you experience Him being patient and generous and sacrificing for you. It's pretty obvious what you're going to become, right? Right? That's why what you worship really matters. Worship anything in the created order, and it will eat you alive. Worship the Creator, and you become like Him. And you're going to have so much life in you that you're not going to know what to do with it all. Which brings us to point three, because not only what you worship matters, but how you worship this God matters. Part of the problem with the woman is thinking, the way that she's thinking, is that she's caught up in the location of worship, with where humans should worship, with the practices that humans should engage in, which reveals another assumption on her part. The assumption is that what matters most in worship is what this looks like from the human angle, that human beings are the ones who are primarily engaged in the work of seeking God, and we do this in worship. And here again, Jesus redirects her. He says to her that what's most important is not 
human seeking God through worship, but God seeking humans to worship. That we are not the most active agents doing the seeking, but God is. That we don't do the finding through our activities, but God does through His activities. If we miss that reality, then we will do with worship what we will do with anything else in creation. It will become this very limited creation-bound thing. We will worship God for what we can get out of Him, and we will turn worship into something that hurts us. We'll turn worship into religion. That's what the Pharisees did. They took the worship that God had laid out for them in Scripture, and they elevated it to this place that was actually above God. And it became more important to them, the way that we worship became more important to them than God, and it became a way for them to get to God. It became a way of saying, God, here is what I've done for you. Here are all the ways that I have worshipped you, and now, God, guess what? You owe me. I did what you told me to do. Now you come through. You are in my debt. In other words, they're still self-focused. They didn't value God above all things, but they valued God for what they thought they could get out of Him. Good life here, great one later. And their worship ruined them. You read the Pharisees, you realize they became arrogant, thought they were better than everyone else. They were miserable to be around. They added all these laws and rules that just absolutely crushed people. You listen to their interactions with Jesus. You hear their critical hearts. You hear how suspicious they were of Him. You hear how much they hated all the good things that He did, and you realize that their religion ruined them, just like it ruins people today. You ever hear someone say, I'm really mad at God. Look at all the things that I have done, how I served Him, how I served His people, and then just look at how my life turned out. This is what I get for worshiping and serving Him? What are they saying? They're saying, I did more for God than He did for me. He still owes me, and I'm angry because He's not coming through. They may not have understood it at the time. I haven't. But they weren't worshiping God. Not for who He is and for how amazing He is. They were worshiping themselves. Worshiping God in order to have a good life. They valued their life, something that God created, more than they valued God the Creator. And Jesus says to this lady, says to you and to me, you can't approach God like that. That's not a God-centered life. That's a life that is centered around yourself. That's a creation-centered life. And it's part of what you need to be saved from. You have to approach Him. You must worship in spirit and truth. You have to be spiritual in order to worship this God. And the book of John has been telling us that when we are born into this physical world, we don't have that kind of spiritual life that we need in order to worship Him. We read this together earlier out of John chapter 1, verse 12, because it's that problem that Jesus came to fix. We learned there that to all who believed in His name, 
he gave the right to become children of God. Children who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, not of anything in creation, but born of God. You can't worship this God who is spirit unless you have his kind of spiritual life. That's what Jesus came to give you. Jesus spells this out explicitly to a man named Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 5. He said that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. This is the prerequisite for worshiping God in a way that does not lead you to using God. God is spirit, which means he can only be worshiped in spirit by those born of the Spirit. Any other approach will simply create a new religion, one more that begins and ends in this world, one more that will be bad for you. Which is why the second part of that phrase is so important. You have to worship in spirit and truth. God has to be worshiped for who he is, for who he's revealed himself to be. And one of the things that he did reveal, contrary to what the Samaritans wanted to believe, was that he did have to be worshipped in Jerusalem at that time. Why is that? That's where the temple was. And in the temple, there was this special walled-off place, curtained-off place called the Holy of Holies. And God said, I will have my presence dwell there among you in a special way. And in that Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box that held the covenant, the special relationship that God made with his people. And on top of that box was a slab of gold. It was called the mercy seat. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, one person was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, the high priest to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, blood that would atone for the people's sin. That's why Jerusalem was so important, because it was there that God had promised, I will meet you over the mercy seat. And there I will accept sacrifice on your behalf. I will meet you and not destroy you for all the times when you've worshipped something other than me, something that I made that I told you not to worship because I knew that it would hurt you. That was the truth about himself that God had revealed to his people. So why would Jesus say to this woman, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Why would Jerusalem no longer be necessary? It's because the hour is coming. It's a very important phrase in the book of John. Whenever Jesus talks about the hour, the hour is come, the hour is coming, it's a time that always refers to his death and resurrection. It's the time where he would go to Jerusalem, to the cross, so that he could enter not the temple in Jerusalem, but a greater temple, the heavenly temple, of which the one on earth in Jerusalem was just a copy. And he would go into that temple, into the full presence of God, and he would be two things at the same time. He would be both our great high priest, who would offer a sacrifice to atone for all of us, and he would be the sacrifice that he offered to God as a substitute for us. That's what Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 tells us, that when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, 
that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. He offered himself unblemished to God through the eternal spirit to cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. That's why Jesus came to earth. That's why there is a Christmas. Jesus was born to live a perfect life so that he could die and offer a perfect sacrifice. And he did that not for people in general. He did that for you because the Father is seeking you, seeking you to worship him. Do you think that having done all of that for you, that he has anything but your best interests at heart? Do you think that anything he calls you to do, anything he calls you to think, anything he calls you to believe, do you think that that could possibly bring you any real harm? You realize, of course not. So this Christmas, let me urge you, give yourself to him like he gave himself to you. Spend this Christmas worshiping him. Lord Jesus, draw our vision away from all of the things that we get so easily caught up with. Back to you. Show us yourself. Show us your goodness. Show us your kindness. Show us your desire for us. Lord, let us find so much joy and delight in you that we won't be able to do anything but worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.